I'm reading from Revelation 2, verses 8 to 10. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Amen. Well, this morning we are continuing in a summer series called The God of Our Fathers, where we're looking at men and women of faith down on through history who have shaped the way that we practice and, and live our faith out today, and who have also just give us different examples of how people have lived out their Christian faith. But before we dive into this series, we're going to take a look at a little video clip. Watch the screen. Hey, mate, I'm in Liverpool, and I'm wondering if you can help. Yeah, I need somebody. Not just anybody. Can you please? Please help me? Let's go! Maybe you can drive my car. Yes, I'm gonna be a star. All right, so you're going to want to watch the whole thing this afternoon when you get home. And actually, before the service, when we just were testing the video, Sharon came up to me and she said, my mom's house is in the background of one of the, the scenes in that clip. Anyways, so you're going to want to watch this. I show this this morning because it's, a, it's this great like, example. And if, when you watch the whole video, James Corden gets to spend this kind of afternoon with Paul McCartney, a member of the Beatles, and they reminisce about what it was like. Like, what was it like to be part of the Beatles? They, they stop by Penny Lane, and they're just like, oh my gosh, this is the place you sang about. They actually go into his childhood home. And at the end of it, they, they go into this pub and they have this like surprise, like on the spot concert that he does. And it's just this awesome time. Uh, and I was thinking about like what an amazing opportunity it would be like to be able to listen to someone say like, what was it like when you were like this teenager writing these songs? What was it like when you were playing in these little clubs and no one knew who you were? What was it like to go through this? Oh, it would be just amazing to hear those kinds of stories. Now, to bring us back to this morning and what we're talking about, imagine driving around listening to someone reminisce about what it was like to be one of the original 12 followers of Jesus. I mean, all kinds of questions. The first one, where did you get this car? I mean, that would be a huge question, right? Like, wow, this is impressive. You have a car in the first century. But beyond that, think of the kinds of questions that you would want to ask this person. What was it like? I mean, we have the Bible. We have these New Testament letters and these Gospels, and they, and they tell us a lot about Jesus, they tell us a lot of different stories and a lot of the little sayings he said, but it's still only like this tiny fraction. And to be able to sit down with one of his closest followers, someone from his inner circle, and just listen to them talk about what day-to-day -day life with Jesus was like, that would be pretty impressive. 
Well, this morning's church father is Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna. And he had exactly that opportunity as a disciple of the Apostle John. So in the Bible, we read about all of these characters who follow Jesus around. And Polycarp is an example of the very next generation. The kind of Christian who grew up under the influence, not of Jesus, but of Jesus' first followers. Ignatius, who's another bishop in Antioch at the same time as Polycarp, wrote about Polycarp saying, I seem to hear him now relate how he conversed with John and many others who had seen Jesus Christ. That was his carpool karaoke moment, being able to sit and talk with someone who was actually there. So who is this man, Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna? Well, he was born in 69 AD, connecting him to both the first apostles and the early church fathers who would follow. He embraced Christianity very young and was posted by John as the Bishop of Smyrna in modern-day Turkey, an important position that he held until his death in 155. One of his famous quips uh, is, when you can do good, defer it not. And this is something that he tried to live out in his life. If you have an opportunity to do good, do it right away. And an example of this is found in his role as the bishop when he traveled to Rome to meet with the bishop there, where a dispute over the date of the commemoration of Jesus' death and resurrection, what we today refer to as Easter, had threatened to tear the church apart. It's interesting, I threw a little snapshot of a calendar up there from this year to note that, that actually the Christian church still celebrates Easter on two different days because all the way back in the early second century, they couldn't agree which day made the most sense as far as when they should observe Christ's death and resurrection. Now, as I said before, we are far from the first church to deal with contentious issues. So listen to the account of Eusebius, an early church historian, writing about this conversation that Polycarp and Anicetus, the bishop of Rome, had when he made this trip. Neither could Anicetus persuade Polycarp not to observe what he had always observed with John the disciple. Neither could Polycarp persuade Anicetus to observe it, as he had said that he ought to follow the customs of the presbyters that had preceded him. But neither considered that the disagreement required them to break off communion and initiate a schism. And they parted from each other in peace, both those who observed and those who did not, maintaining the peace of the whole church. So each of them had been handed down a slightly different tradition from the people who came before them. Polycarp from John and Asadus from the, the other people, the other apostles before him. And they weren't sure how to live this out. So they kind of got together, they tried to figure it out, they couldn't, and they agreed, well, you know what, let's just move forward together anyways. When we go back this far in the history of the Christian church, we have an opportunity to watch some of the earliest Christians wrestle with their faith. Now, some of their issues seem like foreign disputes that we couldn't even imagine affecting our lives today, this being one of them. I don't think any of us even really understand how Easter, the date of Easter is figured out. So if someone switched it, we'd be like, okay, as long as I get chocolate and a turkey dinner, right? Like, I mean... That's really, no, hopefully that's not what we think. But these aren't, that's not an important issue for us. Um, and there are other issues that they wrestled with even all those years ago that we continue to value. And to me, this part of Polycarp's life, this part of his journey is a reminder of our commitment as a church to uphold the strong center of our faith, just as Polycarp and Anicetus did when they agreed to disagree about other matters. This is an important thing that we are doing as a community. And as we gather around the discussion tables, we'll talk a little bit about what is that strong center? What does that look like? What are the things that we are holding on to against all odds? 
As a bishop, Polycarp wrote many letters, much like Paul and the other church leaders. Of course, Paul's letters and John's letters, they are, are part of what we know as the New Testament today. But Polycarp did the same thing, continuing in that tradition, writing letters to the churches. But only one of his letters has been preserved. It's known as the Epistle of Polycarp to the Philippians. You'd be familiar with Paul's letter to the Philippians. Well, this is Polycarp's letter to that same group of believers a generation later. Polycarp stands as an example of how important it is that the message of Jesus be passed faithfully from one generation to the next. There's a lot of breakdown in communication between generations, and I experienced this just last week. Obviously, my brother and his family are home. We're trying to do as many Southwestern Ontario summer things as we can. And so last week, we went, uh, we spent the day in Toronto. We went to Toronto Island on the ferry. We went to the Jays game at night, and it was great. And the whole family was there. Now, Owen was working. He started his first full-time job, and so he couldn't get off early. So him and his girlfriend drove down. They parked at Yorkdale and subwayed in to meet us. And, but on the way home, I thought, well, I don't want to make my kid drive home from Toronto at night, so I'll, I will go and do it. So I said, well, where did you park? He said, in Parkade G on level one. I was like, okay. So my brother and I got on the, got on the subway, and we went up to Yorkdale, and we found, walked all the way across the mall to Parkade G, went down the escalator, and we walk into the, into the parking garage. And this is basically what it looks like. Empty. Now, there were four Teslas, neither of which was mine parked into a charging station, and in the entire parking lot, there were two other cars. There was like an SUV or something over here, and then there was a blue car over in the corner. I was like, okay, there's mine there. So we walking towards it, and, but as we started getting closer, I realized, well, that's, wait, wait a second, that's not my car. And it was like, no, that's not mine. Well, there's only two cars in this parking garage. Where is my car? And so we were like, oh, maybe when he said level one, he meant the lowest level. So we got in the escalator, went down to the lowest level, went in there. And again, there was like two cars in the parking garage. Like 500 spaces. You can see everywhere. There's like no car. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm texting Owen. Where did you park the car? It's right there. It's in G, level one. So my brother and I walk upstairs all the way across Yorkdale Mall to the security office. I said, my kid parked the car. The whole, I'm losing my mind. I'm losing my mind. I'm trying to hold... Com- to be composed in front of my little brother, but I'm like really losing my mind. And I'm thinking someone has stolen my car, and now I, how am I getting home, and what am I going to do about this? I get to the security office, I say, my kid parked the car, he told me it's there, but it's not. We've looked the entire thing, it's not there. He's like, well, let me check the security cameras. So he hops on, he's like, oh, what color is this? It's like a dark blue. He said, oh, I think I see it. I said, how? I was just there. Like, I, I walked from end to end, there's no car there. He said, well, he said, There's this little ramp in the corner of the parking lot, and if you drive up that little ramp, there's like six spaces, and it's surrounded by a concrete wall, so you can't see the cars. Are you kidding me? So I go down, sure enough, walk to the very end. Oh, yes, here's a little ramp. Like, why couldn't my kid have said to me, okay, wait a second, I I got this great parking spot, but you won't be able to see it. It's in the back corner. You're going to have to walk. You will think there's no someone. You'll think someone has stolen your car, but you're going to have to walk there. And when you get to the far corner, you will find it hidden in this tiny little cubby with a concrete wall around it. But no, he just said, Parquet G, level one. I found the car and got home and whatever. But it illustrates the danger of a communication gap. It often happens between generations. You're you're trying to relay information, but you don't relay it accurately enough. And Polycarp was concerned with this. He had this responsibility as a leader in the church to pass on this firsthand witness and example from his mentor, the Apostle John. 
And he had to be really take it really seriously, this role of passing on the message of Jesus. And so this letter that we have of his is filled with quotes from Paul's own letters. And this was several generations between, before these and other letters would have been gathered together in the New Testament. Already the church knew that these letters, they had this, this kind of sacred significance and they mattered. And so this letter that he writes to the church, he's quoting Paul left, right, and center from all these different letters that were circulating at the time. Just a couple of examples of the things that Polycarp said. And, and as I read them, I think you'll, you'll hear in them an echo of, of, of Scripture. Like it sounds like I could have pulled this from the Bible. Be all of you subject to one another, having your conduct blameless among the Gentiles, that ye may both receive praise for your good works, and the Lord may not be blasphemed through you. In another place, stand fast, therefore, in these things. Follow the example of the Lord, being firm and unchangeable in the faith, loving the brotherhood, and being attached to one another, joined together in truth, exhibiting the meekness of the Lord in your intercourse with one another, and despising no one. The same heart of Jesus that, that Paul relayed in his letters is relayed in these letters from Polycarp, passing on the message, the gospel, the good news from one generation to the next. Polycarp also reminds the Philippian church of those who had suffered before their very eyes, members of their church community who had been persecuted and martyred for their faith. He even names some people from their own specific congregation who are now, in his words, in the place which is due to them with the Lord, with whom they also suffered. But suffering wasn't just something for Polycarp to write about. It was something that he lived. Now another bishop of the time, Bishop of Antioch, his name was Ignatius. And he wrote a letter to Polycarp, which we can still read today. He speaks to his character. He says, I am so well pleased with your God-mindedness, firmly built, as it were, upon an immovable rock. While Polycarp was frustrated that he was not able to converse directly with Christ as the first apostles were, he determined, well, at least I can live as Christ did. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And so Polycarp followed Paul's example, and he encouraged the people who came after him to follow his example. Now, much of what we know about Polycarp is from a letter written by his church in Smyrna after his death, and we'll get there in a minute, but we can also look to the book of Revelation, the passage that Judy read for us this morning. Polycarp is believed to be the angel, or the bishop, which is what the word actually means, of Smyrna, who was commended above all the bishops of Asia by Christ himself, the only one without a reproach, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, or in other words, to the bishop, to Polycarp, right? These are the words of him who is first and last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. A letter circulated to Polycarp, this early church leader, follower of Jesus. He promised him the crown of life by martyrdom. And in fact, the martyrdom of Polycarp stands as one of the most well-documented events of antiquity. We read about it in detail in the letter from the church at Smyrna concerning the martyrdom of Polycarp. Now let me just say, first of all, I am no bishop. And I've got a few decades before my tenure rivals that of Polycarp, but I'll be just fine if I never see my name in a letter with a title like that. 
you know, the letter from the church in Waterloo concerning the martyrdom of Brandon. No, please, I don't ever want that story to be told. The word martyr is an interesting word. At the time of its writing, really in Greek, the word means witness. And so the word martyr actually just means someone who is a witness to events. And so the early Christians would have been referred to as martyrs just because they were telling the story of Jesus. They were witnessing to his life, death, and resurrection. But the fact was that so many early Christians were actually killed because of this witness that the word meaning changed. And now when we hear the word martyr, we think someone who has died for their faith, when it just means someone who stood up for their faith. But in those days, so many people who stood up for their faith met the end of their life. Eusebius wrote a church history, and at the beginning, uh, he, or at one point, he writes about this kind of era, the, the kind of the months and the years that Polycarp would have been bishop. He says, in the sixth year of Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus, a violent persecution broke out in that country, in which the faithful gave heroic proofs of their courage and love of God to the astonishment of the infidels, when they were torn to pieces with scourges till their very bowels were laid bare amidst the moans and tears of the spectators who were moved with pity at the sight of their torments. Not one of them gave so much as a single groan, so little regard had they for their own flesh in the cause of God. This is like one little sentence, and the gory details, I apologize for them, but this is the reality of the church in the first century in the early second century, persecuted by the people around them. If you want to read these accounts, you can find it, I'm sure, all over the web, but there's a one website I'll point you to. It's just ccel.org. It's a, a collection of these classic Christian literature, and you can read these letters. You can read about these histories and what the life was like for these earliest believers. But another way that you can get a sense of what it was like for early Christians would be to watch the 2000 movie Gladiator, now, it's not exactly, you know, what might have been happening. It's, it's maybe a generation after, so a couple of decades after these events. And certainly the Christians weren't given a, a shield and a sword, but they were thrown into coliseums and arena. They were made to, to fight wild beasts. They were made a spectacle of in their death. On one particular day during a bloody spectacle, 14 Christians were attacked by wild animals in the arena. This was a sport. Instead of going down to the Jays game, you'd go down and see a bunch of Christians be mauled by lions and tigers or whatever. Well, the crowd became so mad that they demanded more blood, crying, down with the atheists, let Polycarp be found. Now, that phrase may be strange to you. What, what do the atheists have to do with this? Well, that's what they call Christians. Because Christians only believed in one God. They denied all of the gods that the Romans would have worshipped and observed. And, and so because they denied all of those and said instead, uh, we worship one God, they were referred to as atheists. So the crowd starts chanting, down with the aces, down with the Christians. Let's, let's get Polycarp, the ringleader, the teacher, the master. Let's bring him in here and feed him to the beasts. Well, when they started chanting this, Polycarp's congregation gathered around him and, and they said, it's time to, to get you out of here. They're coming for you. And he said, no, I'm ready to face my death. But they insisted, his congregation picked him up and took him out to a town, out in the, a little house out in the country. He went into hiding against his own will. And while he was away at this little cottage, he engaged in nothing else night and day than praying for all men and for the churches throughout the world according to his usual custom. These are the words that his church shared in that letter. Again, imitating those who imitated Christ. Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Polycarp said, okay, I will. And so that's what he did in that little hideaway cottage. One night while he was there, he had a vision. And he woke up and his pillow was on fire. 
He woke up and he told his vision to the people who had stayed in the house with him. And he said, I must be burnt alive. God is telling me how my life will end. Well, after torturing a young servant, a troop of armed soldiers finally found his hiding place. And they burst into this little cottage and find an 86-year-old man down on his knees praying. Well, Polycarp struck a bargain with them. He said, just give me another hour to pray and I'll feed you a full meal. So he fed these, these soldiers and he made mention, his church says, of all that had at any time come in contact with him, both small and great, illustrious and obscure, as well as the whole Catholic church throughout the world. Praying for those he knew, praying for those he didn't know, but praying for the church of Jesus. On route to the stadium, he's asked a question by one of his escorts. What harm is there in saying, Lord Caesar? That's all you need to do. All you need to do is say, Caesar is Lord, and you're free. All you need to do is light this little incense in front of the gods, and, and you're free. Why on earth would you do this? Why would you go this far? But he denied. He said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to call Caesar Lord. I'm not lighting this incense. And so they brought him into the stadium. And when he was there, the believers hear this voice from heaven say, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. And there he is standing in front of these crowds, not sure of what was going to happen, but certainly the words of Christ ringing in his ears, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. As a collection was put together in the 1500s by John Fox. It's known as Fox's Book of Martyrs, and it tells the stories of some of the earliest martyrs of the faith down on through the 16th century. And I want to read a little um, excerpt here um, from this letter from the church in Smyrna. The proconsul then urged him, saying, Swear, and I will release thee. Reproach Christ. Polycarp answered, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? The proconsul again urged him, Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Polycarp replied, Since you still vainly strive to make me swear by the fortune of Caesar, as you expressed it, affecting ignorance of my real character, hear me frankly declaring what I am. I am a Christian. And if you desire to learn the Christian doctrine, assign me a day and you shall hear. Hereupon the proconsul said, I have wild beasts and I will expose you to them unless you repent. Call for them, replied Polycarp. For repentance with us is a wicked thing if it is to be a change from the better to the worse, but a good thing if it is to be a change from evil to good. I will tame thee with fire, said the proconsul, since you despise the wild beasts unless you repent. And Polycarp said, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is soon extinguished. For the fire of future judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly you're ignorant of. But why do you delay? Do whatever you please. Well, the crowd starts chanting for the wild beasts, but apparently they had just finished their rounds and they were resting. And so the, the animal keeper says, no, I'm sorry, we can't use the beasts right now. And so they decided, okay, well, he'll have to die by burning. When they would have fastened him to the stake, he said, leave me as I am. For he who has given me the strength to sustain the fire will enable me also, without your securing me with nails, to remain without flinching in the pile. Upon which they bound him without nailing him. So he said thus, O Father, I bless thee that thou hast counted me worthy to receive my portion among the number of the martyrs. The fire was lit, and as the story goes, the fire burst out in the, the shape of a sail around Polycarp's body, and he wouldn't burn. Eventually, a soldier came, soldier came up and thrust a sword through the side of his body, and he died, his body being burnt on the pyre. 
Polycarp followed the example of Christ right through his persecution and his death. Earlier, he had written about martyrs, including his colleague Ignatius, including his predecessor Paul. They loved not this present world, but him who died for us and for our sakes was raised again by God from the dead. A generation after Polycarp, Tertullian, an early church historian, would write, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. This is an era of church history that, that is foreign to a lot of us, but it's the only reason we're here. Because people like Polycarp stood up for their faith, refused to deny Christ, and passed on that message and that example to the next generation. But what does a life like this have to do with our own lives all these years later? None of us in this room are at the threat of being dragged out the door and burned in Waterloo Square. Like, it's not going to happen. Well, for starters, then, it's a reminder of how fortunate we are. Last year, after a church was bombed, Pope Francis stood up and said, let's not forget that today there are more Christian martyrs than in ancient times. And so first of all, Polycarp's story reminds us that this story continues to happen. It continues to happen in our day. Not in our city, not in our country, maybe. But in many parts of the world, persecution of Christians is even stronger than it was in the first and second century. But we're also challenged to imitate Polycarp's imitation of Christ. In his, the letter from the church at Smyrna, they said, on account of his holy life, he was, even before his martyrdom, adorned with every kind of good. Like he, he took on this, this next level of veneration after he gave his life for Christ. But they said, even before that, he was this incredible example of Jesus. As I think about the story that I've shared, I think there's actually a lot of application for us. I think about his quote, when you can do good, defer it not. He was willing to travel this arduous journey from Smyrna to Rome to try to reconcile with his brother in Christ. There's opportunity for us to do good all around us. Let's not defer it. I think about his love for scripture, how the way he wrote just, just weaved in and out the words of the New Testament. How often do we allow our words to be seasoned by scripture? How much time are we spending diving into these words that people gave their lives to share and spread? He was described by his church as praying for all according to his usual custom. It's a challenge for us to be deep in prayer, to be people of prayer who take advantage of this opportunity to lift up everyone we can think of to God in prayer, including those that we'll never even know or meet. And I think about Ignatius' praise of Polycarp for his God-mindedness, that everything about his life was understood from a perspective of God, God's mindedness. How can we imitate him in this? You know, one of the questions that his life asks certainly is what would be worth dying for? But again, that's not going to be a question most of us will ever have to really answer. So maybe a better question that his life begs is what would be worth living for? What would be worth living for? Polycarp wrote, he who raised Christ up from the dead will raise up, up us also. If we do his will and walk in his commandments and love what he loved. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to close with a prayer before we head off into our time of discussion. And my prayer this morning comes from the letter from the church at Smyrna. And so we're going to pray the same words that they prayed as our dismissal. To him who is able to bring us all by his grace and goodness into his everlasting kingdom, 
through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to him be glory and honor and power and majesty forever. Amen. I'd like to invite you to join us now in a time of conversation around tables in the gym. There's some refreshments and snacks in there, and we'll dialogue about this morning's theme until the top of the hour. Please make your way on over there, and we'll continue the conversation. Thanks.